Okay, good morning, everybody. It is so great to be here with you all. I'm at the top and I'm hiding behind the stand here. Um, you got a bunch of handouts. Uh, one of them is a song, Grace and Measure, that you can add to your songbook. If you were here last year when we handed out this songbook, you probably have it because we handed it out last year also. Um, but we didn't put them in the new songbooks this year. So just add that in. That's part of your homework this week. And we'll talk about the other handouts kind of as we go along. <clears throat> so to begin with, you can just pull out your outline, your worksheet, and we'll also look at these colored charts here in just a minute. All right, well, like we do every week, go ahead and pull out your notebook. We're going to turn it over. And once again, we'll start by talking about our Wellspring purpose and disciplines. Um, so the purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives. And that strengthens the church in its gospel purpose. And we flesh that out with three disciplines. Discipline one is the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. So we want to be faithful women of God. We want to shepherd our hearts daily and worshipfully toward God through the word of God. So how do we do that when we're reading from a passage that's more difficult to understand. Well, most, most importantly, we want to approach all of God's word with humble dependence on him. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. See, the psalmist understood that God's word is full of wonderful things, and so he cries out to God for the ability to see them. And we too must prepare our hearts for meeting with God in his word by coming before him in prayer, with humility, and just expressing our need for him, our need for him to give us understanding. And in addition, we can help ourselves understand what we're reading by seeking to better understand the big picture of the Bible. You received some charts when you came in, these colored charts. There's one for the Old Testament and one for the New Testament. Um, I don't know anything about the author, so I'm not endorsing this website or this author per se, but they have elder, the charts have elder approval. Um, they were okay with us passing these out because they're helpful to look through and get a sense of how the Bible is organized, what's happening when. And when I come to a new book in the Bible that I don't know anything about, I can pull this out and figure out what kinds of things should I expect to see? What people will I be hearing about? What came before? What's coming next? Um, what things were going on at the same time? So this is just a tool that can help as you head into a book that you maybe are less familiar with. So you uh, might want to file those away in your resource section of your notebook or fold it up and keep it in your Bible, however it's most useful to you. Um, but that, that's just one tool. Uh, to help us grasp uh, the bigger picture, and that can help us better understand what God was saying when he actually breathed out these words, and that enables us to respond to him more worshipfully. 
Discipline two then is the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart for God and his word. No matter what our season of life, God's design is for us to make an impact on our home. And so how can we know how we're doing with this discipline? Are we being faithful women who are concerned for those in our home? So here's a question we can ask ourselves to help evaluate. Do the people I love and spend time with outside of my home have reason to believe that I'm a nicer, more caring, more servant-hearted person than the people I live with might think that I am? You know, if that's the case, or when that's the case, it's very possible that we are not honoring God's design for us in our home to be a sweet gospel influence and aroma with those in closest proximity to us. But when we are careful to care well for those in our household, then we bring into other relationships and ministries a sense of integrity that we're not just putting on a show. We're not just trying to make people like us, but rather there's an authenticity that who we are outside of our home genuinely flows from our walk with Christ. And that's clear because it's on display just as strongly in our household relationships as it is with anyone else, maybe even more so. The people in our household will change from season to season. But every season is an opportunity to honor the value God places on the home by caring for the people there with our heart fixed on God and his word. Discipline three, then, is ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And we will really see the biblical foundation for this discipline in today's lesson from the book of Titus. But before we start on the lesson, I want to remind us all again what I know that we've all been hearing from week one. And that is that discipline three starts right here with you and with me. It's with all of us. Discipline three happens when you reach out to someone else in Wellspring or your small group or even someone you meet for the first time on a Sunday morning. It could be a text, an email, a phone call. Maybe you meet up for a walk or a cup of coffee. But when you reach out and you connect with someone else, what happens is that both of you are reminded that we are a body together. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. God didn't design us that way. He did not design his salvation to lead us to isolation. The gospel makes us one with each other. A body in which every part needs all of the others. And so do this this week, okay? Reach out to someone else here in Wellspring. Put yourself in a place to be used by God to encourage someone else. And so those are our disciplines. So today's lesson is on Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Titus if you like. And there are a lot of layers here to see. We're going to see instructions for godly living, and we're going to see instructions for our relationships with each other, especially older women with younger women. And then there's the big picture, and and that's how this fits in the life of the church. 
And that's a lot from three little verses. Um, there is much more here than we can cover in detail. And so one of your handouts was a list of resources. Um, this little sheet right here. Uh, the first one is just information about an audio version of the book that um, I know has been recommended all year long, The Gospel Primer. Super helpful for shepherding your heart to be listening to that. Um, and the next two, then, are books that are specifically on Titus 2, 3 to 5. Um, they are excellent resources. I heard Janet Ye Yates say once that she tries to reread one of these once a year just to keep these truths in front of her. Um, and then the last one on the list is based on Proverbs 31. That's another wonderful passage describing godly women. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of overlap with the qualities in Titus 2 and in Proverbs 31. Um, that book is written with an audience of single women in mind, um, whereas the first two really are written primarily with married women in mind. But I highly recommend any of them to anybody. They are all well worth reading. Um, your priority always needs to be reading your Bible and meeting with God in prayer. But after that, especially if you've never really given much thought to God's design for us as women in the church, um, I really encourage you to read through at least one of these books. They'd be great to read through with a friend. And I've asked Omri to carry a couple copies at the bookstore, so they should be there, available there soon. Okay. Well, that brings us then to Titus 2. So as with any passage of scripture, understanding why these verses here is so important for correctly understanding the passage. So that's where we're going to begin. So the book of Titus was written by Paul, and in it he's addressing a problem. If you were here when Scott taught through this this year, earlier this year, um, you'll remember that the churches in Crete are out of order, and that's why Paul left Titus there. Chapter 1, verse 5, Paul writes, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So the churches need order, and they also needed elders to help bring about that order. And then beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul described a problem in the churches on Crete that the elders must address. There were rebellious men who professed to know God, but by their deeds, they denied him. These men were exerting an influence. And verse 11 tells us that they were upsetting whole families. Households were being thrown into confusion. And so Paul gave instructions for godly living that would bring order. Chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins with instructions for godly living. He addresses older men and women younger men and women, even slaves, all different kinds of people that are found in households and that are found in the church. Because when there are people who profess to know God but deny him by their deeds, it is all the more essential that those who truly know God um, know how to show him that they know him, how to know how to show that they know him by their deeds. And in verses 3 to 5, we find his specific instructions for women, instructions in godliness, and instructions for how we are to help one another grow in godliness. And so I hope that reminds you of discipline 3. So let's read together from Titus 2, beginning with verse 3. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So here in these instructions for setting the church in order, we see that it's necessary for God's word to be honored. And in order for God's word to be honored, our, li- our lives and our relationships need to show that we've been changed by the gospel. Do you see how weighty this is? God has entrusted a significant responsibility to us as women in the church. Now, thankfully, Paul didn't stop there, because we're, and we're going to keep reading, because beginning in verse 11, Paul explains the gospel foundation underneath these instructions. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That is what Christ has done for us in the gospel. And what are those good deeds? How do we honor and obey Grace's instruction here? Well, it's what we saw in verses 3 to 5. Remember, salvation is by faith alone. Our works do not add to what Christ has done. Rather, they display what Christ has done. And so this godly character that we find in verses 3 to 5 is exactly what Christ redeemed us for, to be zealous for these good deeds so that we would clearly be seen to be his people. These are graces instructions for us. How gracious that God does instruct us how to live. So be encouraged. But like Jenna said, it's also sobering because grace's instructions are not optional. So please understand that Paul is not just saying, go clean up your act. Go get it together. No, but he's showing us how important our godliness is in the life of the church. There was a problem in Crete, and the women had to be part of the solution. And we, too, need to remember who we are in Christ and honor Grace's instructions to us and step in by his grace to fulfill the role God has given us to strengthen our church. Christ has saved you out of all that you were, and he's purified you to be his own possession, zealous for good deeds, and your church needs you. Other women need you, and you need other women. These instructions are God's design for us to display the transforming power of the gospel in our lives so that our households are protected. Remember, they were under attack in Crete. And so that our church is strengthened. And so that we give the world no reason to discredit God's word and its crown jewel, the gospel. So let's turn to page two of our worksheet. We're going to summarize our passage with this statement at the top of the page. The word of God is honored through gospel-transformed older women training gospel-transformed younger women. 
Roman number Roman numeral one on the outline is what older women transformed by the gospel must be. So let's start by talking about what is meant by older women. Well, the text doesn't indicate a specific age range. It's probably referring to women who are 50 or 60, generally women whose children are grown. But older is a relative term. There was a time at this church when those approaching 30 were older, and there are a few people here who remember that. Um, Really, all you need to be older is to find someone who is younger. All of us are older than somebody. Each season of life brings us new perspectives that need to be shared with those younger than we are. Younger women are encouraged as we are transparent and share how badly our hearts need the gospel every day. So practically speaking, I find it helpful to think of myself as both an older woman and a younger woman. We can think of ourselves as older women as we have opportunities for encouraging those who are younger. Sometimes they're younger in age and sometimes they're younger in the faith. And we can think of ourselves as younger women as we look for what we can learn from those who are older or perhaps more mature in the Lord than we are. It means cultivating a humble, teachable heart, a humble, teachable attitude so that the godly influence of others brings good fruit in our lives. And we can build these relationships in many different ways in the life of the church. It could be women with whom we serve. That's a really sweet way to form these kinds of friendships. We also have this opportunity in our small groups and here in Wellspring. We also have a mentoring ministry for women. There are times when we might benefit from a more formalized relationship with an older or younger woman. So if you're interested in that, be sure to talk with Chris. That's one of the ways that she serves our body, is to connect women who would like help finding this kind of relationship. So what is the older woman to be? Well, the character of the gospel-transformed older woman is described in four ways. She's reverent in her behavior, she's not a malicious gossip, she's not enslaved to much wine, and she teaches what is good. Her life sets an example that others can follow. These qualities go together. Together they make her the kind of woman who is ready to encourage and train younger women. So what is reverence? Well, the word reverent is related to the idea of being suitable for the temple, like a priest in a sacred place. Paul is saying that the older woman is to do everything with a view towards worshiping God, We are to see all of our lives as set apart for God. Growing in reverence means that our sense of worship is less and less compartmentalized. It's not just limited to our church activities or our time in the word, but increasingly it permeates all we do all day long, no matter what we're doing, no matter how tired we are. This is a woman who prays alone in her prayer closet, so to speak, and without ceasing throughout the day. When I think about the reverent women, I know they are women who deeply understand how badly they need the Lord. And as they've grown older, they've fought the temptation to fear the future and all of its unknowns by fearing the Lord. They know they're weak and needy, and they know God is trustworthy. 
And the only way we can cultivate this kind of reverence is day by day, year after year after year, drawing near to the Lord in his word and prayer and continuing to grow and shepherding our hearts throughout the day, every day. It's back to discipline one. And it doesn't happen just because we get older. It's a commitment to a Godward focus, to trusting him, believing in his sovereignty and his goodness in such a way that it shapes how we live. It's desiring his glory above all. This is what God's grace in the gospel makes possible in our lives. It's what grace instructs us to be. Well, number two on the outline is not malicious gossips. Now, the Greek word for malicious gossips is used 34 times in the New Testament for Satan, the one who accuses and slanders us before God. Paul is saying we must not allow ourselves to be like that in our words or even in our thoughts. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to slander or accuse someone in your mind, to assume they have a sinful motive, or keep a record of wrongs? be critical and judgmental. And if that's how we're thinking, it's no wonder when we find ourselves with an appetite for gossip, whether it's on social media, break room small talk, or chatting with a friend. After all, it's out of the abundance of our heart that our mouth speaks. Isn't it scary to think that an appetite for slander and accusations for pushing others down is actually following Satan's example? But we have been set free from that. God's grace in the gospel instructs us to deny this ungodliness. And now we're being made more and more like our Savior, who's our advocate, not our accuser. We must imitate him by advocating for others in prayer, rather than finding sinful satisfaction in tearing others down. Number three, then, is not enslaved to much wine. Now, nowhere does Paul totally forbid wine, but in multiple places, he condemns drunkenness. Older women are exhorted not to be enslaved to much wine. The emphasis is on the word enslaved. It's a term of bondage. (coughs) It could be wine. Obviously, that was a problem with the women at Crete, because that's what Paul addressed here. Many see alcohol as an escape. But the reality is that it only enslaves those who hope to escape by it. And alcohol is not the only thing that enslaves when one seeks to escape or find comfort through it. It could be food, shopping, our phones, exercise, anything where we might be seeking to escape or to make ourselves feel better apart from Christ, as if he alone is not enough. Ask God, maybe someone you live with, to show you if there's any area of your life where you might be allowing yourself to be enslaved. Because if it's not dealt with, it will cripple our walk with Christ, as well as our relationships, both inside and outside of our home. So the reverent woman is a woman who is shepherding her heart away from malicious gossip, away from enslavement to alcohol or anything, to find her joy and her comfort, her peace, in her Savior, Jesus. That's the fruit of the gospel in an older woman's life. That's how we honor grace's instruction. Well, finally, number four, Paul says that the older women are to teach what is good. 
This is an ability to help a younger woman understand the things that would be beneficial. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from God's word. The word is what gives us God's wisdom. Teaching what is good is not just giving our opinions or experiences, although there are times when that's very helpful. But we need to be women who bring others to the word of God and then encourage them to submit to God in it, to believe every single word. Now, this isn't necessarily a formal teaching role. It includes our conversations as well as our example. So let's ask ourselves, are we daily planting ourselves in the word of God and positioning ourselves to grow in being this kind of woman that God loves for us to be, that grace instructs us to be, so that we can encourage younger women? You know, it's interesting that in Titus, it wasn't Titus who was told to do this. No matter how godly Titus was, he wasn't the right person to encourage the younger women in this way. The church needs godly older women to do this. Women who understand God's grace, that it both saves us and sanctifies us. Well, that brings us to Roman numeral two on the outline. Okay, what transformed older women must train the young women to be. Verse 4 begins, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women. Now, encourage here means to train, to advise, to urge. It's an ongoing influence. We need to remember that these things take practice. It takes time to grow. It takes encouragement. And it takes a whole lot of humility on both sides. Let's read Titus 2, 4 through 5 again. Um, Older women are to be this way so that they may encourage or train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be dishonored. We're to train and urge the young women to make deliberate use of every aspect of life to honor God's word. That's what this is saying. Now, maybe you've wondered why this lesson is labeled Discipline 2 and Discipline 3. But if you look back at verses 4 and 5 again, you'll notice that many of these relate specifically to Discipline 2, the home. Paul addresses the relationship of the home three times in this list, the relationships in the home three times, and he also addresses the work of the home. And being sensible, pure, and kind is certainly essential for being a godly influence in our homes as well. So even as we walk through these one at a time, we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. God is showing us that the home needs to be central in teaching and encouraging younger women. So let's go ahead and look at the first quality, to love her husband. In the Greek, that's literally a husband lover. It describes who a woman is. It's not just what she does. A wife is to pursue being devoted to her husband, cherishing him, loving him with a self-giving love, and being friends with him. This is a self-giving love that we choose to give. And this is all the more astounding when we remember that most Cretan marriages were arranged. In that setting, a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a representative for the gospel. And with all of the confusion in our culture about marriage, 
we also have an opportunity to stand out as gospel representatives, whether we're married or not, by the way we value biblical marriage. Although today marriage is based on personal choice and love, this is still a kind of love which must be learned. It is sadly all too easy for a critical spirit to creep in to our attitude towards our husbands. So we have to cultivate this love and encourage one another in this to model our love after God's love for us in Jesus Christ. In the same way that we do not have to earn God's affection, do not make your husband, or children for that matter, earn your love and devotion. Don't withhold your love, your friendship, your affection. Love unconditionally even when others are stubborn and disobedient, because that's exactly what you cherish about God's love for you. Let them cherish that kind of love from you. Lavish God's grace on them, just as God has lavished his grace on you. Now, to help women love their husbands, we need to understand God's purpose for marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, and marriage is about displaying the self-giving love of the Godhead, It's not primarily about what makes us happy. God wants us to use our challenges and struggles to draw us closer to him, to grow our character so that we reflect him in our marriage. When we understand God's purpose, then we can see our struggles as God's tool to conform us to his image. We'll begin to look more like Christ as we forgive and give up selfishness and control. To help women love their husbands, we also need to understand the priority of this relationship. This relationship is listed first. After our relationship with Jesus, our husband is to be first in our heart, in our mind, in our priorities, before children, ministry, activities, or work. It's easy to get so busy that things get turned around and we find ourselves expecting our husbands to help us and forgetting that in Genesis 2, God created the woman to be a suitable helper to her husband. Now, that doesn't mean that our husbands can't serve and that they don't serve, but we should have an attitude of thankfulness, not entitlement. And so we need to encourage women to give their best to their husband, to be thoughtful of him, to be respectful of him. Ephesians 5.33 says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And the verse doesn't say if he deserves it. That's how the world thinks. But the gospel is put on display when we respect our husband out of our love for God. It honors God when we have a heart attitude that finds joy in putting his needs before our own, that doesn't compare him to anyone else. This is the kind of love in which young women need to be encouraged. Now, if you're not married, I want to challenge you too. Are you cultivating this kind of love toward the people that God has put in your household? your roommates, your family. Of course, it will look different outside of a marriage relationship, but the foundational principles of selflessness and grace and being motivated by God's love are the same. And this kind of love for others shows the lost world that we belong to Christ. Well, that brings us to number two, encouraging the young women to be children lovers. 
And although the most obvious application is to mothers, we all have many opportunities to love and cherish children. There are children all around us whom we can love, especially here at Grace Bible Church. And it's so encouraging to see the many ways in which you are children lovers. I hope you'll be sure to thank all the children lovers who are watching our children today when you see them as well. Being a lover of children means we are to cherish and enjoy children and are intentional about loving them in such a way that points them to Christ. This is a love that's selfless, it's affectionate, it's modeled after God's love for us in the gospel, just like our love for our husband is. It's interesting that though there's so much that can and needs to be said about training and parenting children, here Paul focuses on the hard attitude. By all means, parents need to diligently search the scriptures to understand the responsibilities that God has entrusted to parents to instruct and discipline children, to be an example for them, to teach them the greatness of God and his ways, to help them see their great need for his rescue, his salvation. But what Paul highlights here is the attitude that must undergird everything we do with children, whether we're parents or not. And that can be easier said than done. So here's a very practical place to begin. Loving children begins with choosing to think loving thoughts, even planning what those thoughts will be. So that in the moment of temptation, we are prepared to think what is loving so that we can also do what is loving. And so I'm going to share some examples from uh, Becoming a Titus II Woman. That's one of the recommended resources. Um, And you'll have a chance to practice doing something like this in your homework this week. So first, if we want to think loving thoughts, we need to know what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7 gives us some descriptions of love. For example, love is patient. Love is kind. Later on in that passage, it says that it's not provoked. It endures. And so, for example, we can ask, what would a patient thought look like? How can I be prepared to think patiently, to think kindly? So I want to read just a few examples to help you understand what this might look like. We might be thinking, you know, it sure does take a long time to walk to the park when you bring children along. (laughs) But by being patient and going at their pace, I can show them love. And point, and I get to point them to the great creator of this beautiful world that they're so good at enjoying. Or how about when you've been up all night? You know, this is awful. (laughs) Being up most of the night with my sick child. But... I can still speak in a gentle, kind voice because love is kind. I'm a new creation in Christ, and he has given me everything I need to be kind when I'm exhausted. One last example. How about when you're tired of disciplining your child? A loving thought might go like this. You know, my feeling is that if I have to stop what I'm doing one more time and spank her, I will be so frustrated. However... I know I can, by God's grace, do what's right and show love with my attitude, my words, and my actions since love is not provoked and love endures all things. I can love my child because Christ first loved me. Replacing selfish and unloving thoughts comes by God's grace and diligent work 
on our part. But as we discipline ourselves in this area, God changes our character, and we will grow in loving children in the way he desires. And as we persevere in loving children in a biblical way, we are strengthening our homes and our church. This, too, is grace's instruction for us. Well, number three is sensible. To be sensible deals primarily with the mind or thought life. It means we're not to run for the edges or extremes in our thought life, but instead strive for reserved, balanced thinking that's not easily moved off-center. Being sensible will lead us not to blow things out of proportion in our mind, to give every situation its proper weight, nothing more and nothing less than it should truly bear. We won't minimize what is truly weighty, and we won't give more weight to something than it deserves. This is such a good exhortation for us, because what happens when we do allow our thoughts to run to extremes, when we're not being sensible? You know, maybe we get some test results from the doctor, and if we're not being sensible, we can easily convince ourselves we've already got one foot in the grave. You know, that's it. Better say my goodbyes. We can easily give in to fear and anxiety. Or we read an article about politics, vaccinations, schooling options. The list is very, very long, whatever the issue is. And if we're not sensible, we can run to an extreme position that isn't careful to guard our witness for Jesus Christ and our relationships with those who have a different opinion. We give the issue more importance than it deserves. Now, in all these cases, a failure to be sensible brings us to focus more on ourselves than on the Lord. But being sensible turns us back to the Lord, trusting him with the test results, seeking him for wisdom in the choices we make, as well as for his grace to respect those who disagree with us. This is grace's instruction for us, so that in our thinking and in our responses, we are protecting the honor of God's word. Well, that brings us to pure. Number four, this word means to be morally pure in all ways, including sexual purity. Grace instructs us to be pure, to be holy in every dimension of our life from the inside out. It's purity of heart, mind, conduct. It will be seen in our speech, in our clothing, in our relationships. And when Scott taught a sermon on this, he said something that was so impactful. He said, if we never let into our hearts one impure scene from outside of us, like, say, a movie or a magazine or a novel, a book, we would still have enough impurity in our own hearts to deal with for a lifetime. So don't heap more impurity upon your mind by letting your device or your entertainment Funnel impurity into your mind. So how good are you at detecting impurity and fleeing from it? Do you flee when you're tempted to dress carelessly or immodestly or maybe you want some attention? Do you flee when you're tempted to watch or read something that makes immorality look appealing? How sensitive are you to to fleeing from impure, sinful relationships from even fantasizing about them God commands us to flee and he commands us to repent we need to remember the cleansing and the new life we have from Christ and turn away from impurity to take hold of that which is pure and good 
Our homes and our church need us to be pure. Well, next we come to worker at home. a woman who has a heart for her household, who understands the value and the priority of the work and the relationships and the opportunities in her home. And again, it can be learned. Now, we need to be careful how we understand this. If we're not employed outside our home, we can't assume that that means we are workers at home, because there are so many opportunities for laziness or busyness or misplaced priorities that take us away from being workers at home. In 1 Timothy 5 and 2 Timothy 3, you might want to jot down those chapters, 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 3, Paul expressed concern about that, and so you might want to look at those on your own. On the other hand, if we are employed outside our home, working from home, whether single, outside our home, or working from home, whether we're single or married, we can't conclude that We can't be workers at home or that it's not our responsibility to be. This quality is not optional for any woman in any season of life. Just like being pure or being sensible, it describes who we are, not just what we do in a certain season of life. This is a heart quality that's necessary for the honor of God's word. And one reason Paul is concerned with us being home-working women is because of the importance that God places on the home. Now, in the New Testament, households are a part of God's design for hosting and serving churches, for hospitality, child training, evangelism, discipleship, and refreshing missionaries and those imprisoned uh, for their faith. The home is important to God's work in the church, and as women, we have an important role as workers in our home. We must not let our homes hinder God's work. So what does the work of a household include? Well, the greatest priority is to love and nurture the people who live there and visit there. It also means being faithful with the work that a household requires, being good stewards of all that God has entrusted to us, and learning diligence in managing the many tasks so that as much as it's up to us, our home is a place that reflects the gospel's work in our lives and in our relationships. Being a worker at home means joyfully accepting the time investment required to serve and care well for those in our home. For the married woman with children at home, it means choosing to find contentment in helping our husband and shepherding our children. And there are seasons when this work leaves very little room for anything else, even very good things. So how does that leave us to think about work outside the home? Well, if we think about the Proverbs 31 woman, she's busy with many things outside of her home, but it's clear that that was not contradictory to her being a worker at home. She was still caring for the needs of her household, and everything she did outside of her home was for the benefit of those in her home. It wasn't for selfish gain. And that was evident to those in her household. So there are circumstances when it's appropriate for a woman to work outside of her home or from her home. But if you're married, especially if you have children, 
this is a decision um, that needs to be made very carefully under your husband's leadership as together you evaluate in your particular season of life what's your motivation for working outside your home is it the best thing for your walk with the lord is it the best thing for your marriage for your family is it the best thing for your church and there are times when when a woman may need to work outside her home in order to submit to her husband but no matter the circumstances there needs to be a clear way for every woman to be a worker at home, to be available for the work in our homes, even if we're also employed outside our home. So if you do work outside your home or from your home, here's what you need to do. Be a homeworking woman who also works outside your home and do it without guilt. Do it with all your heart as serving the Lord. And recognize that there are challenges. There may be a lot of other good things you have to say no to. But you can trust your Savior. He's your master. If this is what he has for you, then his grace is sufficient for you. This is his plan for you to give him glory and for you to be made more like Jesus right now. And you're part of a body. Let godly older women encourage and support you in the challenge of being a worker outside of your home while still being a faithful worker in your home. Either way, grace instructs all of us to be homeworking women. And so if that's a struggle for you, find an older woman to help you cultivate a heart for the work of your home. You may need to find a woman who can help with help you with learning practical skills of household management and organization. Not that there's only one right way to do things, but sometimes others have ideas and skills and experiences that are helpful for us. So even though it might, this might not seem like the most spiritual thing to do, to work hard and to be faithful in our home, please see that in God's economy, it has great value. Well, that brings us to kind, number six on the outline. So this word kind is also translated good in the New Testament. It's a kindness or goodness that comes from the heart and then overflows into words and actions that benefit others. Jesus said in Luke 6, verse 45, the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good. And that brings us right back to discipline one again, because the way our hearts get filled with good treasure is by meeting with God in his word. Do you see how we never graduate from discipline one? I hope that when you wake up in the middle of the night, that's the first thing that goes through your head. This kind of good treasure from God's word in our hearts will produce kindness in what we do. It's interesting how kindness follows right on the heels of workers at home. You know, often our heart attitude is most clearly revealed right there in our own home with those relationships. And sadly, very often our household is where we can be most careless with being kind. We can start keeping track in our mind of maybe who has served more, or we might not think it's important to be careful with our tone of voice or our facial expressions to be certain that they express kindness and give grace along with our words and actions. But since genuine kindness is something that God produces in our lives and it flows out from our heart, then it cannot be based on how someone else is acting or how they're treating us. It's not a reaction to those around us. 
Genuine kindness is a reflection of our Heavenly Father. And grace instructs us to be kind. That brings us to number seven, being subject to their own husbands. So what do you think about submission? Maybe I should ask, what did you think about it when you first heard the idea? You know, before Christ, all we wanted was self-rule. Remember the blue chart we had back in lesson two over on the left side? Now as those who are new creations in Christ, though, we can still find that residue of sin, of wanting to grasp for self-rule, even though God places us under authority at many different levels and always for our good. And so we need to let our minds be transformed by the truth of God's word and encourage younger women to think biblically about submission as well. Understanding submission is relevant whether we're single or married. A biblical understanding of submission prepares us to encourage our married friends. And understanding submission prepares us for marriage if that's in our future. No matter our season of life, there are authorities to which we must submit in our family job, church, school, government. And the heart struggles we have with that authority very often boil down to whether or not we trust God to sovereignly lead us through fallen, sinful people. So understanding submission here will help us deal with that struggle in other settings as well. So being subject means to voluntarily place oneself under. It's placing ourselves under, not waiting for someone else to tell us that we have to get in line. It's not something we do only when someone is watching. We're lining ourselves up under our husband's leadership. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. And as Christ is honored by a church that submits joyfully and wholeheartedly, so in the same way we honor Christ, we honor grace's instruction when we submit to our husbands joyfully and wholeheartedly, even as we trust Christ. Grace's instruction is not honored by grudging or partial compliance. Submission in marriage is a great privilege because we get to display the submission of the church to her Savior. But if it's such a good thing, why can it be so hard? Well, we could point to a lot of things, but ultimately the biggest struggle to submit comes from our own sinful heart. We love to rule ourselves. We love to trust in ourselves. We love to think we are right. And so we need to realize that our battle with submission is not a battle against our husband or against anyone else in authority. It's a battle with our own sin. That's our biggest adversary. We need to remember that the Lord is trustworthy. He's the one we are trusting and honoring when we submit, whether or not we feel like our husband deserves it. 
It's done willingly without being contentious. Now, contentious means exhibiting a wearisome tendency to quarrels and disputes. Proverbs 19.13 says that the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping, just an ongoing irritation. And we need to be intentional about agreeing with our husband as often as we can. You know, just because he's not doing something the way we do it doesn't make his way wrong. It isn't helpful, for example, to jump in and correct your husband in his parenting when he's midstream. It doesn't mean that we never speak up or share our opinion, particularly about major decisions and issues. We do need to speak up in appropriate, helpful, respectful ways. We do need to work hard for biblical unity with our husband in parenting. That's important. But we need to wait for the right time to approach him and make sure our own heart is ready to approach him with the goal of building unity, not just trying to persuade him to the rightness of our position. And we need to be careful. We shouldn't think that every decision our husband makes needs to be discussed with us. God created Eve to be a suitable helper to Adam, and so that can help us evaluate, am I being helpful, or am I being wearisome and contentious? What would your husband say? What do your children see? You know, it's also important to understand that submission does not mean that we follow our husband into sin. And if we see a sinful pattern in our husband, we can make a gracious appeal. That's part of being a helper to our husband, too. And we may need to ask our husband if together we can obtain counsel from an elder or a godly couple that we trust. Being a suitable helper in the truest sense of the word may mean humbly requesting assistance when we're concerned about the consequences to our family of our husband's choices. But always, always, that has to be done with prayer, examining ourselves, First, for the log in our own eye before we try to help our husband see the speck in his, and with the utmost respect, humility, love, and gentleness. Well, let's finish this virtue with First Peter 3. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the same way, now he's pointing back to Christ at the cross here, in the same way, You wives, be submissive to your husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. So what is the instruction, even for this kind of husband who is disobedient to God's word? Be submissive, and let them see your pure, respectful behavior. Verse 3 says your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Submission begins in the heart by cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit. And so one more time, I have to say it, that's why discipline one is so foundational. There's no way to cultivate genuine biblical submission without faithfully submitting ourselves to God in his word. There's protection when a woman comes under the headship of her husband. 
and we can't assume that all women understand this principle of submission. It is so contrary to the world's messages. We all need to be encouraged that submission strengthens our families, it strengthens our church, it honors grace's instruction, and it protects the reputation of God's word. It matters. It's about our heart and our willingness to trust God and submit to him by submitting to our husband. Well, that brings us to number three. What happens when transformed women are all they should be? Well, this really brings us back to where we began. We have seen that Paul is concerned for the church and that the way in which we must be part of strengthening the church is to live in such a way, as it says in Titus 2.5, that the word of God will not be dishonored. What a privilege that is. God took us from being lost, rebellious, God-haters, and he purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus to give us himself. We get God through Jesus' death in our place. And then by grace, he places us in his body, the church, and he makes his part strengthening his church by protecting the honor of his word through our relationships and spurring one another on in godliness. That's amazing. But I want to close with an excerpt from the Gospel Primer. This is the third little sheet you got that's this size. And I want to close here because if we leave the Gospel behind, these instructions could discourage us or we could even get a sense, a false sense of self-righteousness. Only the gospel can keep these instructions in the beautiful place they deserve to have. So go ahead and follow along as I read Gospel Perspective. Preaching the gospel to myself each day nourishes within me a holy brazenness to believe what God says, enjoy what he offers, and do what he commands. Admittedly, I don't deserve to be a child of God. I don't deserve to be free of sin's guilt and power. I don't deserve the staggering privilege of intimacy with God, nor any other blessing that Christ has purchased for me with his blood. I don't even deserve to be useful to God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and I have what I have, and I hereby resolve not to let any portion of God's grace prove vain in me. And to the degree that I fail to live up to this resolve, I will boldly take for myself the forgiveness that God says is mine and continue walking in his grace. This is my manifesto, my daily resolve, and may God be glorified by this confidence that I place in him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for being our great God, for being eternal and all-knowing, all-wise and holy, and for making a way ensuring that rebels to you would be reconciled to you through Jesus. Thank you for the greatness of your salvation that brings us together in a body with a perfect design for using us in each other's lives to display more of you. Father, I praise you and thank you for your word, and I pray 
for these dear sisters in Christ. I pray that your word would be taking root in their hearts and growing and bearing much fruit, that they would be encouraged, that you would help each one of us remember the peace of this lesson that you really are, that you've brought us to a point where it's time for us to apply that particular quality in, in increasing measure, Lord. Grant us grace to grow and um, to be used by you, and that our church would be strengthened. In Jesus' name, amen.